Welcome to the Weave Podcast. My name is Sarah Resnick, and I'm the host of this podcast and the owner of the online weaving yarn shop, Gist Yarn and Fiber. This podcast episode is sponsored by Tian Chu of Warp and Weave. Color and weaving can be frustrating, and sometimes a beautiful palette of yarns will weave into a gorgeous project, and sometimes they'll weave into mud, the exact same colors. I imagine you've had this experience. As a result, you may have had color disasters, and to avoid these disasters, you may have limited yourself to boring colors or project recipes. And maybe it's time to break out, to master color so you can design gorgeous cloth in the colors you really love. At Warp and Weave, learn about color from master weaver Tian Chu, featured on Weave podcast number three. Tian's episode, All About Weaving with Color, is one of our most popular downloaded episodes, and I've heard from so many of you about how Tian has helped you become more confident with color. So I'm thrilled to wholeheartedly recommend that you go to warpandweave.com podcast to sign up for Tian's free online mini course about color in weaving. You'll also find out more about Tian's in-depth online courses about color in weaving there. Let go of your color frustrations. Learn how color works at warpandweave.com slash podcast so you can confidently design gorgeous cloth in the hues you love. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the first new podcast episode of 2019. LaShawn and I have lots in store for you. And I'm starting out with a quick request. Are you enjoying this podcast? If so, please tell your friends about it and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. It really helps new people find us. We're kicking it off with a fabulous episode, my conversation with Jane Patrick and Barry Schacht of Schacht Spindle Company. As weavers and spinners around the world know, Schacht is a beloved company making beautiful, high-quality equipment for weavers and spinners. All of their products are made in Boulder, Colorado, and they are celebrating their 50th anniversary this year. Hello. I'm so excited to have you both on the podcast today. Welcome. Thank you. Thanks. Can you start out by introducing yourselves and sharing a little bit about Schacht and also about where your love of fiber crafts comes from? Sure. I'll start off. This is Barry Schacht. I'm the president um, and founder of Schacht Spindle Company. Um, I would say my earliest um, interest in textiles came from when I was working with my parents in a retail clothing store in upstate New York. And I always appreciated fabric. You know, I think when uh, Paisley first came out, I was totally entranced, didn't understand what it was all about. But later, of course, I did find out. Um, and there was so much, you know, that I got interested in um, seersuckers and uh, twills and tweeds and all the different fabrics that go along with men's clothing. I think that was my first um, inkling of interest. And then also my mother was a tailor. And from her, I learned about sewing and putting garments together. That's great. How about you, Jane? For me, I was always called the family putzer. I was always making things. Um, I think every year for Christmas, we embroidered dish towels and hankies. I think I did that till I was a senior in high school. Um, my mother wasn't a sewer at this, that time, but um, I was around sewing. My grandmother sewed, um, but I, I just did a lots of craftsy thing. Um, I think when I really began to get involved in textile arts was as an exchange student in Iceland. 
And as part of that experience, we could go to home ec school for six weeks. And so I went and I learned how to knit and I did some traditional Icelandic embroidery and I sewed a garment. And then I walked into the weaving room that was full of looms. And I just fell in love. It was like I had to do this. I was going to do this in my life. They had stopped weaving for the year, but there were still warps on the loom, so they let me weave them off. But at that point, I was hooked. And then when I came to Boulder in 1976, I started taking weaving classes. And what are the beginning stories and early days of your company? Well, it was um, long before my time. <laughs> way, way BF Jane. Um, I came to Boulder. I'd been living in Seattle, and before that I'd been living in Japan, and before that I'd been in the Air Force uh, Reserves, and before that I was a dropout. So I, I came to Boulder to visit my brother, and that was in 1969. I never left. Um, and I really couldn't leave because I didn't have any money to get out of town. So I continued living in my van which I'd been living in Seattle, and uh, suddenly um, had this opportunity um, to make a loom and some spindles because my brother had a girlfriend at the time who wanted to learn about these crafts. So we met the uh, Greens at Green Tree Ranch, and they kind of introduced us to the idea of making something for them, even though we didn't really know what these things were. Uh, But... At the same time, the Back to the Earth movement was growing, and it was great. It's kind of like, uh, compare it to the maker movement of today, everybody was wanting to craft things. Um, and uh, we just got carried along with that for many years. We started making our looms, we organized classes, uh, we opened a retail weaving shop, and as things developed, we continued to build our factory until um, we're in the plant that we have today. But in the beginning, they were just messing around. They weren't, they did not, they weren't intentional. They didn't like start off and say, we're starting this business. They were just making this stuff and selling it. And then one day they woke up and they realized we're really in business. So at that point, then they started investing in equipment and um, getting real manufacturing space and really taking uh, what they were doing seriously. And what was it that was the impetus behind thinking it was now a business? No job. You know, Mm. it was great to be on our own, independent. Um, The few jobs that I had in uh, Boulder didn't really pan out too well. Um, I got um, fired from a university job, and everybody says, oh, you must have been a professor. And I said, no, I was a groundskeeper. But I had mowed a peace symbol into the front lawn of the student union, (laughs) and this was towards the winding down of the Vietnam War, so they didn't really take, um, they took great exception to that. So I got fired and not having, again, any money. um, We were really, you know, just hanging out, a lot of hammock time. Um, But when we did realize that this was something that could earn us a living, it kind of, uh, you know, it, it was just a, a wonderful thing because we could create, we could make, we designed how to uh, build product. Um, we worked with a few other shops to begin with until we had enough money to buy our own equipment. And from there, we've continued to build the business. 
And it sounds like you have such a varied background. So how did you go about learning how to make looms and design looms and other textile products? Well, the key, I think, was that growing up, we had a wood shop in the basement. And uh, with my father, I built quite a few things, soapbox, racing car. Um, I would go down and uh, make uh, toy guns. I would do different crafts in the basement. And uh, it was just that, I think, initial beginning of understanding the use of uh, materials and doing woodworking that made it pretty easy to transfer into something like weaving looms, which were so intriguing because they're really simple. You know, the whole basis of our technology and industrial revolution was based on the advancing of uh, hand weaving tools and then into the mechanics of weaving. Hmm. And Jane, you mentioned that you were not part of Schacht in the early days. When did when did you join in? Well, I met Barry. Um, I was a weaver uh, when I met Barry. Um, I'd come here and taken classes. At the time, I was a social worker, and then all that funding went away. So um, my weaving teacher, Debbie Redding, at that time now Deborah Chandler said, oh, I think you could go up to Interweave, and they have a job, actually a shipper job, not an editorial job. So I applied for that job, and Linda Ligon, who was the founder of Interweave, hired me to do a readership survey, um, which I have a background in cultural anthropology, so that fit very well. And then um, after I did that, she kept me on as kind of a personal assistant, and I just gradually started doing editorial work, which, as it turned out, I really liked it, and I had I learned a lot working at Interweave, just a whole lot about editing and writing and um, weaving techniques. I learned about spinning, and then um, I left there uh, to stay home with our daughter, and it was during that time that Barry was looking for a sales manager and couldn't really find someone that was a good weaver but also had sales background. So um, he asked if I would come in temporarily, and that was in 1992, and I'm still here. We, we had already been married. Um, Jane always misses this thing, but we met at the <laughs> weaving shop, which uh, the weaving shop was owned by Deborah um, and Eric Redding, Deborah Chandler now. And it was just a chance meeting that, um, you know, I immediately fell in love. I don't Mm -hmm. know about Jane. It took a little bit longer. But um, so when we, um, when she had that uh, offer to go up to Interweave, we had already uh, been dating, you know, and had just finished a bicycle trip from London to Stockholm. And uh, along the way, we did get to even visit quite a few other loom makers. Hmm. And so what has it been like to run a family business with the two of you together? What are the the ups and and downs and great parts of that? Waking up in the morning and talking about it. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I don't even get that first sip of coffee in before (laughs) something is on Jane's mind. Um, But we have managed it just great. You know, our interests are uh, very much similar, but we have different skills and we only cross over every once in a while. And uh, we have a lot of uh, things to say about the whole business and all aspects of it. 
Well, I, w- um, I think in the beginning, we didn't think that was going to be such a good idea to be married and working together. But as it turns out, I think it, it's even made our relationship stronger. We work very well together. We um, complement each other. And it's fun to do something together, to make something together. And, and my area is really, I'm the weaving expert. I'm the creative director, so I'm thinking about all kinds of projects that we're doing. Barry's more running the business, um, involved in manufacturing and product design. So it, I think it works very well. And now our son-in-law, uh, Michael Yeager, is joined the company. He's been here 10 years, and he's in charge of operations. So it's really nice to have that continuing. So you create a really wide range of products for weavers and spinners, and I'm curious which your personal favorites are, each of you. Mm. Oh, I love each one I'm working on (laughs) at the time. And then as something new comes up and, you know, certain unique aspects of it um, are evolving to be um, actually eventually a real product, I kind of feel, you know, attached to that, I get a little disassociated with some products, but over the years, probably the few that stand out the most um, in the beginning, the incredible rope machine. That was fun. We actually built a few electric machines and put them in the garage and made hundreds of dozens of rope belts and, and put them out all over the world selling even department stores like Macy's and Fredericks's and Nelson's in Seattle. Um, And then uh, the wolf line of looms has been just great because we've really developed it from the very first baby. Now we have um, mighty wolves. We have wolf pups. We have a lot of wolves running around here. (laughs) Um, In fact, it was interesting in the early days, uh, one of our customers got a postcard from us saying your baby wolves will be arriving very soon. She was in Connecticut in uh, farm country. And the postmaster spread the word that wolves were coming <laughs> to, to this place, and people got a little upset. Um, and then a great change for us was the matchless spinning wheel, because we had not made spinning um, a priority outside of spindles until uh, about 1986-87. And since then, we've kind of balanced um, our new product lines, and each one of them is distinctive and um, I get attached to all of them, but I can't say um, that any one is a favorite. Maybe it's what we're working on right now. What are you working on right now? I can't say. I I didn't know we had, I guess we have a secret. I didn't know. But, you know, I think in terms of of me, I love the, um, the baby wolf is our best selling. Uh, the eight harness baby wolf is our best-selling loom and there's a lot of reasons for that because it's it's pretty powerful but it's very simple to use it's it's portable um so i love the baby wolf um but at home i have a wolf pup 810 because i have a very small studio so now i'm getting attached to that but i think if we look at innovative product design i think the flat iron spinning wheel um is really great because it is so different and the idea of bending that plywood to make the legs I think was ingenious so um, 
I don't know how Barry feels about that, but I think in terms of making a wheel that we want it to be KD that and also to be able to be right hand spinning or left hand spinning and answered all those questions plus it's just so unique unique uh to uh looking and then it has a very large drive wheel so it's also a really fast performing wheel so i really like that for that reason i think another really unique product um is the ultra umbrella swift and I think this points to when we make a new product, we don't just want to copy what's out there. We want to say, answer the question, why are we going to make this product? And we only make it if we feel like we can make it better or, or, or offer features that haven't been offered. And, and that one only took me 10 years <laughs> to design a Swift. But, um, you know, it sits in the back of my mind um, and um, I just um, have to wait until some unique features make it a better product. So we, we do that, and I'm kind of not a hired gun designer. I kind of, you know, come at it from a very different point of view, and I'm not so sure I understand what point of view I come out of it um, from, but um, I enjoy that probably more than any other aspect of the business. Can you talk more about that product design process? I'm really curious about it, and I bet a lot of other people are too. Yeah. Well, in the beginning, you know, it mostly came from looking around us, seeing what was available, and then um, enhancing different designs. Um, I would say in the last 20-plus years, as Jane's been in the business, she sees a need and then um, asks um, us to work on that. And initially, I have some concepts of what that means physically and structurally, how we'll do it. And then we work with a team here, um, which today includes an industrial designer, it includes um, people who are in production. And, you know, we start with a very simple sketches. And today it's wonderful because our industrial designer can do all this CAD CAM drawing and refine things. And then we can go into the prototype stage by putting things into different machinery, some of it automated, some of it CNC controlled, um, and start producing parts. It's almost like you're making clay models. We've been developing this new product, which I can't tell you anything about yet. And that's how I describe it to the design team is think about it as, you know, we're, we're molding and shaping this. Don't think about it um, yet as a finished product because all the curves and um, the um, aesthetic elements will come later. And uh, I've had that very good fortune because I've also designed quite a few products for the bicycle industry and uh, we work the same. Today, tools are much more accessible, such as 3D printing and uh, quick prototyping. So um, with creating different um, aspects, we also um, have a huge resource of outside vendors who can make steel, aluminum, leather, rubber, plastic parts for us, and we utilize their expertise in designing some of the componentry. Yeah, I think that's another big part of product design is all the other uh, non-wood parts that go into a product. And Barry is super good at knowing all kinds of different fasteners and screws and um, I don't know what well, you and, call and them. Processes, widgets. how you make stuff, mm -hmm. you know, how you make it, whether it's a machine part, an extruded part, 
um, what the tooling might cost because you have to be realistic. You can almost make anything that you can imagine today um, on a 3D printer, but you need to know what process is actually going to be the production process and does that fit with the um, uh, value added and the cost to make the uh, weaving loom. And so you're doing all of your manufacturing in-house in Boulder, is that right? We manufacture about 2,000 parts here. Mm -hmm. Um, Most of them wood. A few are um, other materials, uh, such as a little bit of plastic, a little bit of alteration to parts, uh, quite a few metal parts. But most of those plastic and metal parts, no matter how they're made, are done by a variety of outside vendors all over the United States. We have almost 95% of everything we make or more is uh, made in the U.S. Every once in a while we have to go out um, into the, uh, to import, and it could be that we're importing things from England or from Germany, a little bit from uh, China, but 99, 95% of what we have is uh, U.S. manufactured, which could include Canada. We really say North American because um, we have great suppliers of uh, certain wood products in Canada that we uh, work with for many, many years. And then are you doing all the assembly in, in Boulder? Yeah, we mm-hmm. do all the manufacturing mm-hmm. of those wood mm-hmm. parts and all of the assembly, all the instruction writing. Um, all the videos. Um, we have a lot to do with the design elements of things. We do work with an outside graphic designer and an outside photographer for certain things. And what has it been like? You, you're, you've been in business for 50 years now and sticking with U.S. manufacturing as many other companies have been shifting away from that. What, where does your conviction to stick with that come from and, and how has that been like over the years? What has that been like? Well, you know, it's, it is really interesting because it's almost going back 25, 30 years. We saw different uh, people who were making um, things such as wooden dowel products in certain screw machine metal parts. They were disappearing Um, And it was very hard to find new suppliers. But luckily, the Internet came along, and I'm very resourceful. I used to have to read thousands of pages of the Thomas's Register, which is paper-thin books like encyclopedias, but twice the volume of pages, to find the different component manufacturers. Today, um, I can do searches on the Internet, and uh, find people for different things. We just had one of our wood suppliers decide they couldn't make 10 parts for us any longer. And they did that by telling us they were tripling the cost. Well, that was solvable because I went online and also we have now five other companies in rural Pennsylvania. They're small family owned wood turning businesses. And we now get all the parts for almost the same price as uh, we were getting from this one Midwest supplier. Same is true with several suppliers and uh, in the East Coast, and some of them are not necessarily primary manufacturers, but they're representatives of many companies, so they can always help us source things. So we've been very successful at that, Um, but you must say if other manufacturing declines uh, further, then we would be hard-pressed also 
and even more hard-pressed than, say, um, large companies because our volumes are very small and a lot of people, even in um, other countries, don't want to be bothered with thousands or five thousands. They want to be making millions of every little component. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but I think in terms of the question, why have we stayed manufacturing? You know, I think that's our core business. That's what we are manufacturing, I think. I mean, we supply, we and what we make are weaving and spinning tools that we're very passionate about. But I don't think we would have any heart at all in having our products made elsewhere. Because, you one, as Barry says, there's low volume. And, two, you lose a certain amount of control. And, three, we like making stuff. Mm -hmm. That's what we do and we have some very long-term people here um, that have been making stuff, uh, producing stuff in the back for years and years, 30, 35 years. So you also feel a responsibility to the people that you're employing um, to keep the business healthy and going. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned early in this conversation that this business was getting started during the Back to the Land movement, and I'm sure you've seen spinning and weaving communities change quite a bit over the decades, and I'm curious if you could talk about how those things have changed and, and how you see the community continuing to develop today. Well, I think, you know, when the company was founded in 1969, I mean, everyone was May, everyone wanted to weave, and that's when a lot of programs were started in universities. A lot of the companies were started about the weaving uh, loom companies, equipment companies, yarn companies were started. That's when shops were opening up. Before that, there were very few places in the country where you could actually learn how to weave or spin or buy stuff except um, mail order. And then the it would just grow. The, the knowledge and the, the, that people gathered was just incredible how fast people learned so much. And a lot of books were produced in those 60s and 70s. And then um, in the 80s, what happened was women went back to work, and that totally shifted what was happening. Well, oh. they did. They had the time and... Um, a lot of them had the deep interest in uh, continued to making things. And uh, they could do a lot of other things, but then their, their time was limited when they had to go out into the work world. And even though there was some great benefits to that, uh, it didn't necessarily accrue to the benefit of all the people involved in crafts. So, um, I mean, we saw this when I was editor of Handwoven, kind of what happened with um, our readership and what the readers were involved in. And so that was, I think, a bit of a struggle to kind of adjust to that. But then what happened was that at the turn of the millennial, um, then people, again, they wanted to get involved. They wanted something real. That was like a trigger. And then also during the economic downturn in 2008, again, people wanted something real. So I think in a way craft today is a is a, a, a reaction to the computerized world whereas um, the craft and arts movement was a reaction to the industrial uh, industrial revolution and I think now we're, in some ways we're going back 
to the Back to the Earth movement because there is this real group that they want to grow their own food, they want to make their own stuff, they want to know who's making their stuff, where it's coming from, is it mm. ethically sourced, mm-hmm. do they treat their employees well. You know, I think people are care about those things now, and I don't think we people even thought about that um, in 1969. Hmm. Do you have anything special planned this year for your 50th anniversary? Oh, so many things, but we can't tell you about the new products. Okay. <laughs> that is cele- the theme of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> but celebrations, yes. Uh, um, probably in next September, there'll be a real big... Um, celebration uh, where we hope that we'll have you know all kinds of things going on at the factory um, as I say we do have product introductions we have uh, different ad campaigns the official date for our celebration is September 21st in case you didn't know that <laughs> ah, forgot um, that breakfast uh, but we're going to have some special edition like cherry mashless and cherry wolf looms we're going to have some special edition shuttles um, we're going to have uh, some weave-alongs and spin-alongs and Instagram events. So it's going to be a year we're really going to try to celebrate who we are and also every month have some little uh, piece on our blog about the people that work here and, and kind of the inside of Shack because I think people are curious about that. So it should be a really fun year, and I'm looking forward to that. How exciting. Well, I so appreciate both of you coming on to share about the story of your company. And before we close off, I'm wondering if you could do two things. If you could share um, where people can go to learn more about Shacked on the internet and social media, and also if you have any closing advice or words of wisdom for weavers out there. Okay. So um, you can find almost anything about us and customer service, et cetera, et cetera, at shackspindle.com. You can find us at Shakes of uh, Facebook.com and then just Shack Spindle Company and then just search for us on Instagram, Shack Spindle. Great. And in terms, oh, I should also mention you could subscribe to our newsletter, um, which they can do online. And one last thing in terms of advice, mm-hmm. I just say follow your passion. Mm. So I, I have just one last thing to say, and it's kind of a famous uh, poetic thing that Jane doesn't even know this, <laughs> although she's heard it a hundred times, but it gives people something to think about, and it's a little literary. You might call it a pun poem, but um, here it goes. Thrums are the crumbs of thread, and crumbs are the thrums of bread. Hmm. I guess that's our parting words. <laughs> I like it. Thank you both so much for Sarah, coming. Sarah, thanks so much. It was Thank great. Thank you very much. Take great care. To to Good you. to be with you. Take care. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. That's a wrap. If you'd like to see photos of Jane and Barry and their factory and production team, check out the show notes at www.gistyarn.com slash episode hyphen 46. That's G-I-S-T-Y-A-R-N dot com slash episode hyphen 46. I also have links there to Shaq's looms and weaving equipment, should this conversation have tempted you to try something new. I love Shaq's looms and I'm always love talking about them, so feel free to shoot me an email with any questions at sarah at gistyarn.com. 
That's Sarah with an H. Thanks to Tian Chu of Warp and Weave for sponsoring the podcast. Want to cure your color frustrations? Go to Warp and Weave and register for Tian Chu's free mini course about color and weaving. Learn about color from an expert weaver from the comfort of your own home. Find out more about her in-depth courses in color and weaving and learn how to design beautiful handwoven projects using color and weave structure. Turn your color frustrations into delight at www.warpandweave.com slash podcast. Next week on the podcast, I'm talking to Cindy Boxer, a textile artist and founder of Nyroma Studio, as well as a new podcast that I think you'll all love called the Fiber Artist Podcast. Stay tuned for that conversation, and until next time, happy weaving! Happy weaving!